listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number 95. Today, we're talking to Ellen Bravo of Family Values at Work about making workplaces family-friendly and pushing paid leave on the campaign trail. But first, the news. Last week, the Supreme Court finally heard the potentially precedent-setting case of Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. As we've discussed before and belabored, the case could determine the financial and political viability of many public sector unions in the future. And it could finish off that debate that was raised in an earlier case that we've covered here at Belabored involving public sector workers' right to organize under Harris v. Quinn. Both cases turn on the legitimacy of so-called agency fees, which are levied against workers in unionized public sector workplaces, such as state regulatory agencies or public schools, on all workers covered by a collective bargaining agreement, regardless of whether they are union members per se. A ruling against the union side in this case could result in undoing a critical precedent called Abood versus Detroit Board of Education, which established that in a closed shop where the union represents all workers, all workers can be obligated to pay their fair share to help sustain the union's logistical work and basic service of negotiating with the employer on their behalf. In this case, that would be the government. This is basically to achieve the best possible terms of their contract, and everybody benefits from the shop, so why not pay their fair share? Well, enter politics. The right-to-work groups, as well as business associations, have lined up on the other side of this case, arguing that there are free speech implications and that workers are oppressed by uh, collective bargaining agreements that they are forced to finance with these uh, compelled agency fees. So considering that public sector unions, particularly teachers' unions, are some of the only labor organizations today that represent major shares of any workforce, this could be a big deal for public sector unions and the labor movement in general if they lose their ability to finance themselves. In the private sector, the opposite of closed shop has prevailed in about half the states, so-called right-to-work states, where only union members support the union on a voluntary basis, and that has been accompanied by steep attrition rates as well as a general weakening of labor unions in both financial and political clout. Many say that the labor power that has eroded in private sectors over the years are specifically due to right to work. And if public sector unions succumb to the free rider problem of workers benefiting from a collective bargaining agreement but not helping to support the collective bargaining process, then that could spell further devastation. Today, the increasing concentration of political power in the hands of a moneyed elite suggests that public sector unions are one of the last bulwarks against corporate greed controlling government agendas, and they're crucial for setting a high standard for wages and economic security for civil servants nationwide. Besides, activists say the argument of the right-to-work side that agency fees somehow violate workers' free speech rights is basically just ridiculous, since the funds in question are not even used to fund real political activity. It's basically to support the bread-and-butter functions of running a union. And unless you think, you know, teacher break periods and uh, smaller class sizes is somehow oppressing public school teachers, then bread and butter does not equal encroachment on First Amendment rights. Unfortunately, it looks like the court is leaning towards overturning Abood, and that could lead to all public sector workforces essentially becoming right-to-work areas. That means that organized labor in government could soon go the way of private enterprise workers who have both seen their ranks and their finances shrink in recent years. 
Now labor organizers are trying to steal themselves through this legal development by vowing to up their game in terms of recruiting dues-paying members. Of course, only time will tell whether this can really offset the impact of right to work if a boot is overturned. But at least the Friedrichs case is forcing the labor movement to reconsider how it approaches organizing and the bread and butter services that engage the rank and file. So we'll see whether that's a winning strategy once it becomes really the only game in town that can counter the boss's power. The water crisis in Flint, Michigan, caused by austerity policies under the state's emergency manager law, has finally begun to attract national attention. We talked about the emergency manager issue way back in episode 16 with Marcy Wheeler, but for now, suffice it to say that the undemocratic emergency manager system was expanded at least in part to bust Michigan's public worker unions, and the same manager who was in charge in Flint when the water went bad is now running Detroit's public schools, and those schools have toxic hazards of their own. On Wednesday of this week, nearly all of Detroit's public schools were closed in the latest and biggest teacher sick-out protest yet. The sick-outs have been going on for a week now, but this one coincided with Barack Obama's visit to Detroit to attend the North American International Auto Show. Using the president's celebration of the city's flagship industry and its recovery as a day to shine a light on the awful conditions in those schools. The teachers have been flooding social media with photos of what it looks like inside the school, from photos of mold and mushrooms to water leaks and moldy bread. The schools are literally making them and their students sick. Not quite a strike, the sick out still halts work and holds special resonance when they're protesting health hazards for themselves and their students. Detroit schools have been under state control through that emergency manager for quite a few years. Teachers have been taking pay cuts and freezes, which are supposedly going to fix schools somehow, and yet the schools have only gotten worse. As we have talked about on this podcast before, when teachers protest, they are often accused of not caring about their students. Darnell Early, the emergency manager, yes, the guy who helped poison Flint's water, said that the teacher's action was having a negative impact and implied that he, not the teachers, was the real voice for the students. He is named in the class action lawsuit that's been brought over Flint's water, and the teachers are pointing out the connection between the hazardous conditions their students learn in and what was done to the children in Flint. Tracy Russell, a teacher and parent in Detroit, Detroit told reporters the children of Flint were poisoned to save a dime, so you know, it just begs the question. We can do better. The sick out says enough is enough. The mayor of Detroit toured the schools after the second day of sick outs last week, which might lead one to ask why the mayor doesn't already know the conditions in the schools, but in fairness to him, the schools have been taken out of his hands by the governor and his emergency manager. The presidential candidates also discussed the Flint situation on Sunday at their debate. We would love to hear more if we have listeners in Detroit or Flint. You can always reach us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. In the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, airport workers from nine airports across the country launched labor actions to lift up King's legacy in light of today's struggles against racial and economic inequality. Workers in several U.S. cities took to the streets, rallying and engaging in brief work stoppages to demand $15 an hour, joining a growing outcry for a living wage and job security, which we've covered many time on Belabored. They were backed by SEIU, which has been pushing the nationwide Fight for 15 campaign and encouraging low-wage non-union workers in fast food and other industries to demand the right to organize and to a decent wage. 
These coordinated actions at the airports involved major travel hubs like Reagan International in Washington, D.C., where hundreds of airport service workers marched to block traffic on the Kutz Bridge, and other workers at O'Hare Airport in Chicago, where subcontracted employees reportedly earn as little as $6.25 an hour. Similar actions took place around New York City's LaGuardia Airport and SeaTac Airport near Seattle, one of the first communities in the nation to set that golden $15 minimum hourly wage. The protesting workers represented a massive, low-paid, subcontracted workforce that provides services like wheelchair attendance, baggage handling, and security at airports. And due to their outsourced employment arrangements, the airlines have often been able to suppress their wages, deny them essential benefits, and basically treat them much worse than direct hires. SEIU has for the past several years been mobilizing airport workers alongside community groups in various cities and reports that in the wake of their campaigning, more than 45,000 airport workers nationwide have either received wage increases or other improvements, including health care, paid sick leave, and worker retention policies. Last November, airport workers at New York's JFK, Newark, and LaGuardia, as well as Chicago's O'Hare airports, went on strike briefly to demand higher pay. And back in 2014, employees of 13 subcontractors serving the three New York area airports voted overwhelmingly to join the local SEIU 32BJ. The MLK Day actions mark yet another milestone in a nationwide movement, echoing one of King's last actions as a grassroots leader. He marched alongside striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Nearly half a century later, King's legacy lives on, but so does his struggle. Airport workers are still marching, still chanting, all labor has worth. And all that signifies the unfinished work of pursuing racial and economic fairness for the city's most marginal workers. The Service Employees International Union, which backs the fight for 15, has already endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. But on Sunday, before the presidential debate in Charleston, South Carolina, fast food workers and other low-wage workers went on strike and then marched to the debate, calling on the candidates to come get my vote. Clinton has called for a $12 national minimum wage, while Bernie Sanders has been on the side of 15 for a while, and Martin O'Malley, a distant third in the polls, has also endorsed 15. Only Sanders joined the workers at their rally to offer support, but the workers and organizers were out to make demands, not issue endorsements. South Carolina, of course, has an important early primary, which will be the first time the candidates face an electorate with a large number of black voters. The fight for 15, meanwhile, continues to draw connections between low-wage workers' conditions and the movement for black lives. Their march on Sunday also included a stop by Mother Emanuel, the church where Last year, nine people were shot by white supremacist Dylan Roof, and the workers left flowers in remembrance of the victims. South Carolina is, of course, a low-wage anti-union state with a governor, Nikki Haley, who famously brags about wearing high heels to kick unions with, that same governor who was invited to give the uh, Republican response to the State of the Union this year. So it's encouraging to see a decent-sized strike in her state, which I also should tell you I used to live in, and uh, it's good to see continued pressure on the candidates to get behind the workers' demands. We will, of course, see what happens. Back on the podcast this week is one of our favorite guests. Ellen Bravo is the director of Family Values at Work, which is a network of state coalitions working on paid family leave and paid sick time that is now in 23 states. She is a lifelong labor activist, the author of the excellent book Taking on the Big Boys, and also is the author of a new novel titled Again and Again. 
She is here to tell us how family leave, sick time, and other workplace issues became central to the 2016 election, why we still have to fight for these things in the first place, and why we can't talk about the future of work without talking about care. So... Ellen, it is election season 2016. The top two Democratic candidates are a woman and a socialist, and they're arguing about whose family leave plan is better. How did we get to this world? Because I don't recognize it. Well, it's not surprising to those of us who've been in the thick of it for a long time. And it's taken a long time. Yes. But it's the result of so much activity on the ground. You know, there comes a point when people figure out that there's got to be a better way to do this. We can't be a nation that says... Be a good parent to your children and a good child to your parents, and if you do, you'll face financial disaster. And you know, for a long time, people think that's life. What can you do? It's just the way it is. Not that it's fair, not that it's good, but they don't see a way out. And what began to happen is people saw there was a solution to this, and it was a public policy, a family medical leave insurance fund. And suddenly there were three states that had done it, and they had done it, people just like regular people, the, you know, workers and business owners and people who care about kids and seniors and people who care about, you know, fighting against making chronic illness a disability. And so they said, well, we need to do this too. And we, and they started to tell candidates and politicians, this matters to us and it's going to affect how we vote. That's how we got there. And now there are campaigns in a number of places. We could see wins and we could double the number of states that have these programs in 2016. And there'll be more in 2017 and 2018. Um, And your listeners can get involved if they aren't already. Excellent. Um, I'm sure that at least some of our listeners are involved already. So your organization is called Family Values at Work. The right wing loves to talk about family values, and their form of family values is usually bashing Planned Parenthood. At the same time, we're seeing some conservatives moving on things like family leave. So I wanted to ask you about why it's important to talk about family values, what we mean by family values, and also to consider things like family leave as connected to things like reproductive rights. Well, you know, the sense of the word. A long time ago, I realized I'm not giving them, the other side, the word life, and I'm certainly not giving them the term family or values. If we live in a country that claims to care about family, and yet family values too often end right at the workplace door, we we make it impossible for people both to care for their families, their loved ones, and also provide for them or for themselves. That's ridiculous, and it needs to end that situation. So we're reclaiming that term, but we're making it clear what it really means. And our definition of family is as broad as it can be. People who are related by blood or affinity, people who love and care for each other and make a commitment to each other. And we work really hard to have that definition of family in our laws, which, you know, right away helps distinguish us from the right wing. And in terms of, you know, things like these attacks on Planned Parenthood, you know, things that sort of make women's reproductive behavior the scapegoat, I mean, how is that connected to the right's refusal to mostly acknowledge the need for things like paid family leave or even equal pay at work? 
it's interesting to see who lines up where. The yeah. very people who are attacking Planned Parenthood and call, crying out to cut their funding are the same people who are standing in the way of passing paid sick days or family and medical leave insurance on a national level. They say they care about life and they care about women's health, but in fact, they are consciously obstructing it and, you know, passing on distorted lies about the work that groups like Planned Parenthood do um, in order to pursue their own agenda. It's not an accident that the, you know, people who want to make sure that the 1% has what they need at the expense of the rest of us line up in the same way on things like should people have the right to take care of their own health and make decisions about their own bodies? Should people have the right to be good parents to their children when they're sick and without getting fired from their job? Should people have the right to be good fathers and take care of their kids without their families going into debt because they've had a new child or a kid with cancer? You know, being in control of our destinies, particularly for women, means absolutely having to be able to decide whether or when to have children. But it doesn't end with the day that you decide, now I'm going to have a child. It also means how am I going to literally go through the delivery and healing and bonding with this child without risking my family's financial security? How am I going to make sure that that child gets the care that they need when they're little, how am I going to make sure they get it when they're in school? How am I going to sure, make sure they can go to college and not be saddled with that? So all these things are connected. It's all part of the life cycle. And, and then those of us who grow up, we also then have parents who may need care from us. And we have to understand that the ability to make those decisions and to be in control and not have to be pulled into, will I give up, will I have to abandon the person I love or my own care in order to pay my bills? There has to be a process that we see as one piece and fight for it in every one of its dimensions. Women of color for quite a long time now have made it clear that Reproduction doesn't just refer to abortion, but it also refers to the right to have kids, and that that has to include the right not to have kids and to decide when and how and whether. And once we get that, once we see that this is um, all together, then we see, oh, the attacks on Planned Parenthood are linked to attacks on paid sick days because the people behind them don't care about life. They don't care about healthy children. They care about controlling women. Once we understand we have that in common, then we can link our fights with each other. So last time you were on the show, you said this wonderful thing that I love, which was, you know, we want more women in power, but we want more power in the hands of all women. So I want to go back to the the work on the ground that you said that was key to us getting here because these policies don't just get handed down by presidential candidates at the top. So tell us a little bit more about the organizing and the the work that went into this and 
some of these victories in on state levels, on paid sick days, on paid family leave, that really led us to where we are today. If you go to our website, there's this great pamphlet called Why I Became an Activist, and it's profiles of a dozen people from 12 different cities who've all gotten involved in our campaigns. And, you know, that people just tell a story about what happened to them, having a sick child or a sick parent or being ill themselves and getting, dealing with that crisis and somebody saying to them, you know, there's a coalition that's trying to change this and realizing that what they couldn't do all by themselves, they could do if they worked with other people. And each of these profiles, people describe their pride. They consider it an honor that they have become activists. And they talk about how at the beginning they thought, why me and what can I do? But then they realized that it mattered, that they had something important to say, which was their own experience and, and the fact that no matter how hard they worked and how much they played by the rules and how much they did what they were told to do, they were now in this crisis for reasons that we should be holding up and not, you know, blaming them for. And so they got involved and they saw that it did make a difference and they they began to feel that power of what people can do when they work together. That's really exciting and the greatest joy of my job is watching that moment when someone figures out that they can turn the pain of their own experience into power by pooling it with a whole bunch of other people just like themselves. And in the process, actually get to know people who aren't like themselves, who've had similar but also some very different experiences. Maybe they're an immigrant. Maybe they're a different racial or ethnic background. Maybe they're someone who loves somebody of the same gender and this person hasn't known somebody that closely before, etc. And you begin to see people start questioning, who taught me to think? that my problem was fill-in-the-blank group rather than the people who are standing in the way of the policies that we need. They begin to understand an analysis of power in a way that they haven't before. All that is, you know, very exciting, and it's what's behind this change. Yeah, the last time you were on, also we talked about social justice feminism and understanding feminism as more than, again, than a couple of you know, people leaning into to high paid positions. How do you see that particular ethos playing out in this election season? And I'm thinking about, you know, Donald Trump and the awful things that he's saying as much as Hillary Clinton. How can we think about social justice feminism while dealing with all of this hellacious campaign season? I think what, what one thing that people are realizing is that it's important to have good leaders, but that Without the power of an organized movement, even the best leaders won't be able to make the change we need. So there has to be work done at the grassroots, and you have to get to the root of the problem. And as long as there's the kind of money in politics that we see, as long as the system is rigged against the majority of people, we just won't be, you know, whatever good ideas people have, we won't get there. And what gives us that power is by pulling our resources and our energy and our movements, and that's what's going to drive change. So I think that helps change people's thinking about, oh, if I could just find the right leader, whether it's in a company or in the country, then everything would be okay. It's important to have 
with people at the top, but most important is to change who makes decisions, how the system works, and make sure that we think not just about having more fill-in-the-blank group in power, but having power in the hands of all people who've been discriminated against, excluded, and, you know, exploited. That's what's going to make change happen. Um, And it is interesting because we've seen even people who were not on the side of uh, things like paid sick leave and paid family leave suddenly change. I'm thinking of uh, my buddy Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, who just made paid family leave or a call for paid family leave a big part of his state of the state. Well, two things happen, I think. One is that people realize that you know the things we want aren't just good policy, they're also good politics. But also I think it's true that people get in touch with their own experiences. I think he meant um, his regret at not spending time with his father at the end of his life. And he realizes that that was something he could have done, but it's something that millions of people in this country cannot do without a huge cost. And we we have to have a nation where regards for our parents. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've met who literally go to the hospital, kiss their loved one, whether it's a parent or a spouse or sometimes a child, and then have to go to work, and knowing that that might be the last day that they'll ever see that person. It's inhumane. It's, you know, barbaric. And we've got to recognize that this is, you know, 2016 United States of America. We can't possibly claim to be the greatest country on earth and allow that to happen. Let me see. I think the last time you were on was in 2014. So... In that time, how many, uh, tell us a little bit about some more of the places that have gone, that have passed a paid sick days bill, um, that are moving towards paid family leave. Where are some of the victories that people might not have heard about? It's so great. If you go to our website, you can see a timeline of wins, both on paid sick days. And then there's also a booklet that shows the wins of all the years that we've been together. And they were just a few when we first started and then a few more and then a few more. And now there's pages and pages. Yeah. So we now have one paid sick days in four states, one county, and 23 cities, and there'll be a lot more in 2016. There may be more, in fact, you know, within the next few weeks. Um, like I said, we've won paid family leave in three states, and we may have three more this year. The exciting thing is that there's there's activity all over the country. I mean, we just added Arizona and Montana to our network. It's not just on the coasts that this kind of change is coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, spoke, you know, we, we the first win of 2016 was in Spokane, Washington, and now there's going to be a ballot initiative for the whole state of Washington right. to win paid sick days and a higher minimum wage. We're going to see more ballot initiatives on this issue in 2016 than we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's very exciting and it's, um, you can feel the energy and you can see that a lot of the, you know, people in the media, for example, call up and say, hey, what happened? How did this happen? <laughs> and all of a sudden, this is, this is a, a trend. And so it's made a difference. It, it's penetrated and gotten much more visibility, but that would never have happened if there hadn't been um, lots of groups of regular Americans and, uh, you know, building partnerships, getting to know each other and figuring out how we're going to make this happen because we need it. 
for our families and for our country. And realizing that, you know, what, what to me, one of the most exciting things that's happened is that we're shifting the conversation. When it first started, it was all about business versus workers. And mm-hmm. then we started to develop a lot of partners who were business owners who said, I won't let the Chamber of Commerce or the National Federation of Independent Businesses speak for me. That was one thing that shifted. But now we're all going beyond saying it's not bad for business to starting to talk about what I call the intended consequences of making care valued and affordable in our country. Let's start talking about things we say we value, like reducing inequality and reducing poverty and reducing, how about infant mortality? Why are we 27 in the world on this? And maternal mortality, but also increasing things like healthy kids and breastfeeding and successful um, well, baby visits and um, more involvement by dads and people being able to go back to work and people making higher pay and all those things. There's a long list of them, and they're all the intended consequences of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So not only are we not causing harm, not only have we shredded the lies of the opposition that the sky will fall and businesses will be destroyed if we do what we what we need to do, yeah. but we're beginning to show that this is how we get to be the nation we deserve to be and need to be. Yeah. Um, one of the other issues that's parallel to all of this and that's also coming up a lot lately is paid child care and universal preschool, um, universal pre-K, and we're seeing movement on this issue as well, um, which again is sort of surprisingly popular across party lines. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that's so important and why that has been so controversial as well? It's funny, back in, you know, the early 70s, right. there was a very broad child care bill passed, and it was vetoed by Richard Nixon on the grounds that it was communistic and turning the care of children over to government and government bureaucrats and so on. And, you know, I think there's long been established research about the importance of the early child years, the importance of brain development and so on. And yet, for so many people, early childhood is the time of a parent taking two buses, dropping a kid at a daycare where you just pray that they at least will be safe, and then reversing that process at the end of a day where you didn't know when your shift would end and what time you'd have to be back the next morning. Um, in impossible situations that people are going through. And so at some point, even, you know, conservatives realize that you can't force mothers to work if you don't do something about their kids. And finally, a lot more people are realizing that what you do with those kids has to have quality and has to be affordable. And we have this tension, this contradiction that the People providing child care, and for that matter, elder care, and care for the frail or ill, often live in poverty because mm-hmm. their work is so undervalued because what do they do? But the work that women do for free in the home, they do it for a living and vastly undervalued. They can't make a living off it, but the people who are paying for it can't afford to pay for it. Yeah. And so we finally, more and more people are realizing you can never solve that dilemma unless you add a third leg. There has to be public support for it. And, you know, 
question isn't whether we can afford it. The question is, do we have the political will to make it happen? So happily, more and more people are getting involved in this and coming up with policy solutions for how to do it. And it's harder and harder for those who say they care about family to ignore the devastating situation for so many young kids in our country. So one of the things that we hear a lot about these days, um, well, we hear a lot about robots because everybody's obsessed with robots, but a lot of people are talking about the future of work and what does that look like? And of course, you've pointed out that the future of work right now looks a lot like the work that women and workers of color have been doing forever. But assuming that we're actually on a path towards, oh my goodness, paid family leave and paid sick time, what are some other policies you'd like to see that would ensure that the future of work doesn't leave the people who have already been left behind for so long out? I'm so glad that you asked about the robots because, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people who just assume yeah. that all the jobs are going to be automated, lots of people are going to be, how do we alleviate the pain? for people who will lose their jobs, rather than asking who's going to make those decisions, in whose interests, and for what purpose. So I can think of lots of jobs that need to be done, that can't be done by robots. I can think of lots of jobs that robots could do. I'd be glad to have them do it. There are a lot of other jobs, like think how great it would be if our schools really had enough teachers or other educators who cared about kids. Yeah. cared about kids. Think how great it would be if we had all the health care folks we needed. Think how great it would be to have health advocates who called you up and said, hey, how's your hip doing? Um, how was that treatment we, we recommended? And um, it's time to come in and see us rather than, you know, suddenly realizing that years have gone by and you haven't gotten the checkup, the mammogram. What if we had people who really should rebuild the roads and the schools and who did something about climate change? There's enormous amount of work to be done in our country, all of which could be good jobs, and good jobs that have decent hours, decent vacation time. I urge your listeners to see the new Michael Moore film, Fabulous, about the things we need exist. They're not pie in the sky. They, they are everywhere in the world. We know what they look like. In fact, many of them came from ideas that were born in the United States of America. But we need to make them happen. So we that involves changing our power structure and who's going to make the decisions about the future of work. The gig economy, you know, a lot of people just assume, hey, that's the way it's going to be. Everyone's going to be having gigs. Well, guess what? A lot of people take those jobs because they can't get any flexibility at work and because they can't make enough money. And so they're doing stuff on the side. If jobs were stable and had decent pay and had flexibility that we know how to do, people would do jobs they want to do, but they would do them with decent pay and benefits. It's possible to do it. I met a guy in New York who has gig outfits, except all the workers there are regular employees and they get full-time benefits. They decide their hours and which gigs they'll do or which they won't, and they have that flexibility, but they don't lose the stability that they need. So we we know these models, and really the question is, are we going to work together to make sure that that's how we decide what jobs get done and for whom? It's almost like the future of work has a lot to do with who we care about. Yeah, exactly. 
So speaking of all of this work, in between all of the work that you do, you managed to find the time to write a novel that came out last year that takes on the issue of sexual assault, but also gives a kind of fun, revealing look at the workings of the uh, kind of feminist industrial complex in DC politics. <laughs> so tell our listeners about, A, where you found the time to write a book, um, how you decided to write a novel on top of everything else, and of course, where they can get your novel. So my novel is called Again and Again, and you can get it anywhere. Ask your best independent bookstore. If they don't have it, make them order it. But you can also get it online and um, you know, electronically, et cetera. I wrote it because I've been writing fiction for a long time. Excellent. And because um, I wanted to help tell stories that hadn't been told. I wanted to reach people who, you know, don't read treatises and nonfiction, but do read fiction and care about stories. And, um, you know, I wanted to entertain, but also to write about things that matter. And I figured out that the way I have time my children are grown, and I have a husband who cooks, and I mean all the time. And when you think about the time people spend thinking about what to eat, what to make, getting the ingredients for it, making it, I don't need to do that, and that frees up a lot of time. I travel a lot, but when I'm home, I work from home, and that saves a lot of time. Think how much time people lose yeah. in their commutes, and that's how I did it. Well, I will personally recommend the book to all of our listeners. I love getting a text from you one day saying, your book made me cry on the subway. It did. I get lots of, I get lots of messages from people saying that, or your book made me laugh, or especially I get messages from people saying, this happened to me, and I didn't have the words for it, or I never told anyone, or it happened to my daughter or somebody else's daughter, and... Um, so it's and, and now I get it and I'm, and now I I realize oh you saw me and I realize that I'm not alone that there are a lot of people like me so those things make me feel really gratifying. And that was Ellen Bravo, director of Family Values at Work, talking about paid leave and the campaign trail. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My ARG for this week is called This is What $15 an Hour Looks Like by Gabriel Thompson in the recent issue of The Nation. It's part of a Cities Rising series that does a deep dive on what's going on in the nation's cities, and he looked at a small sliver of the nationwide Fight for 15 movement in a place called Emeryville, California. He zeroes in on this small city in the Bay Area, where workers in retail and fast food struggle every day for the basic necessities of life, in order to look at how the Fight for 15 affects people's lives on a day-to-day basis. He talks, for instance, about Shardija Woolridge, a part-time McDonald's worker who went on strike in the nearby city of Hayward, where she made California's minimum wage of about $9 an hour. For her, $15 would be a huge economic boost, and she talks about how it would help alleviate the hardship that has wrought havoc on her family as she struggles to support her mother, who struggles to scrape by in disability, and is in constant danger of eviction and electricity shutdowns because she can't make ends meet. Woolwich herself has struggled just to pay for textbooks for college and sometimes even for stuff like her own soap. 
Another local worker, Tyler Wright, works at the local pack-and-save grocery store for minimum wage and was nearly at her wit's end last time Gabriel Thompson talked to her when she was pulling in at as little as $150 a week to support her family. For these workers, since Emeryville managed to raise its minimum wage to above $14 an hour with incremental yearly increases to $16 over time, uh, with the first big increases coming at workplaces with more than 55 workers, Those workers don't just see the Fight for 15 as a nice idea, it's become a political keystone for them and kind of a political lodestar in terms of their everyday activism. After months of campaigning across the Bay Area, the Fight for 15 has finally become real in Emeryville, with a lot of workers starting out at $14 an hour now, smaller firms paying $12.25, and that's coming on the heels of other area minimum wage increases, such as in Oakland, where they raised it to well above $12 an hour even earlier. The difference in their lives so far has been palpable. People are able to pay bills for the first time on time. Family relationships have improved as financial stretches are eased by the extra income. And for many, the hike in their hourly pay and the knowledge of their activism helped push this change through has reinvigorated their sense of civic engagement and their confidence that their collective social actions can actually make a difference in how their city is run. Thompson also depicts a fascinating social ripple effect as the workers at the very dregs of Emeryville's low-wage workforce start to see an improvement in their economic security and the workers just slightly above them start to feel a bit of class anxiety because they feel like, well... If these workers below me are getting paid that much more, then where's my raise? And so there's sort of a general upward pressure on the bottom tier of the economy. And Thompson reports that even in low-wage workplaces, quote, there is an understood hierarchy that a $14.44 minimum has mostly demolished. A cook at P.F. Chang's complained that he was now earning the same as dishwashers. One IKEA employee reported grumbling among co-workers who were upset that they now made the same wage as the new hires. I wouldn't be surprised if the coming year finds employers raising wages again using the new minimum as a floor. Social hierarchies notwithstanding, at the very least, now there is an upward bound of competition instead of a constant downward spiral of exploitation. Nonetheless, there are many who continue to struggle just a little less than they did before. Oscar Chavaria, who sends much of his wages back home to support his widowed mother in Mexico, can simply never work or earn enough to make ends meet, even when he's working 80 hours per week at low-wage restaurant jobs. He tells Thompson, quote, that's where all my money goes, back to Mexico. His life here remains one of poverty, getting by the bare minimum. Nonetheless, he is enriched by the peace of mind of knowing that his family back home in Mexico is just a little bit more secure now that he's earning enough to put away a little bit of savings and remit more back home, which counts for a lot more in Mexico. In Emeryville and other towns that have seen significant minimum wage hikes, especially in places like California, where much of the low-wage workforce is uh, comprised of immigrants, the impact is often immeasurable and subtle. And sometimes it can come soon enough, but it manifests itself in obvious ways, too, because it allows people to think for the first time about what they can do and be tomorrow, and maybe it even allows them to dream just a little bit. Arleigh Russell Hochschild has theorized quite a few of the ideas that modern feminists can't do without, from the second shift to the newly popular concept of emotional labor, which we've discussed here on this show many times. To make our show fully thematic, I've chosen her piece from the latest issue of Dissent, The Right Versus the Family, as my ARG for this week. 
The current issue is on family politics, which you can, of course, get by going to the Dissent website and clicking subscribe. And in this particular piece, she notes that while the personal politics of domestic labor may have changed, men can do housework without it being seen as compromising their masculinity, though, of course, men still do less housework. What is really lagging right now is the public policy to bring out about real equality of work. Like today's guest Ellen Bravo, Hawkschild is not willing to cede family values to the right. Families, and particularly children, she notes, do better in social democratic societies that fund childcare, schools, and healthcare, not to mention the paid leave we were just talking about. She notes that studies have found that children in more equitable societies do better even when controlling for class. In other words, a middle-class person with the same income in the very unequal United States is likely to be less healthy than her counterpart in a more equal country like, say, Norway. The gap holds up even across the U.S. as more unequal states have worse outcomes than more equal states. And the supposedly red states are some of the hardest hit. They are where Hochschild makes an argument that might be hardest for some on the left to hear, that we need to stop feeling smug about ourselves and about those people over there who vote Republican and reach across the aisle to find some common ground. And, she argues, it might not be as hard as we think. As an example, she gives a Strong Start for America's Children Act, a bill in Congress that would pay for advanced training and higher salaries for teachers of three- and four-year-olds, making high-quality preschool available to all. And that bill actually has solid bipartisan support from even 60% of Republicans. Could family policy be a place to break through some of the barriers to keep austerity policies like the ones gutting Michigan schools in place? What about the children is a line that's often used by the right to shame single women, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people, or even, you know, just those of us who live in New York. Thanks, Ted Cruz. It is time to turn it around on them and show who actually cares about happy, healthy families. That is all for this week's very thematic episode of Belabored. As always, you can find links to everything we've discussed on the Descent website, and as always, we would love to hear from you. Are you a childcare worker, a teacher? Are you in Detroit or Flint? Did you go on strike for 15 or join a Martin Luther King Day action? Are you running for office? Do you need paid family leave? We want to hear from you. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org, tweet at us at hashtag belabored, and we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>